My name's David Hayward, and I'm, among other things, an event organizer and games curator. So the two main things I do in games are I curate a thing called The Left Field for EGX, uh, which is basically about showing their existing audiences interesting and new games that they might not have considered or seen before. And the other thing I run is Feral Vector, which is a yearly event in Hebden Bridge for game developers and people interested in making things. And that came from not liking conferences. So I do this thing with friends in a big church with lots of natural light that's next to a wooded ravine. And we basically make game developers go outside and try doing new things. So that can be anything from lino cut printing to LARPing in the woods. So uh, do you think that game developers need to see these new things? Like, is, is there a gap then for inspiration and, and physical world contacts and so on? Yeah, absolutely. In so many different ways. So I think I first started to notice it about 15 years ago when I was working on events like conferences. And it was hard to find good speakers. And the reason for that was that these were people who had sat at a keyboard for 20 years and are not used to getting up on stage or doing these things. But in a much wider sense, it's about cultural influences. There are several times in my career I've kind of almost got bored and drifted away from games. And the last time was just like, I am so fed up of tits and guns. That was in the early noughts, like almost before it even started. Just really sick of the defaults video games stick to and was looking for something, anything interesting. And then someone showed me Katamari Damashi on their like borrowed Japanese PlayStation 2 at the time. And suddenly seeing that, I was thinking, oh, right, yes. This is not just an interesting medium. There are people doing interesting things with it. Whereas, you know, not long after that, Simon Carlos was running a thing on... I, I, I've forgotten their new name, but the terrible, awful one that they recently changed, Gamma Sutra. He was running a weekly interview with game developers where they would talk about their influences. And in two years of doing that, there were only two developers who rocked up with an interesting array of influences from diverse fields. And everyone else is like, oh yeah, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings. And it's just very much like, do you want the science fiction flavor video game or the fantasy flavor video game? I I don't despise that. I just find it a bit boring. What does culture mean to you? It took a long time for me to articulate this or really realize what it was. But long before I was involved with video games, I realized that I had settled on something close to the anthropological definition of culture, which itself is a continuously shifting and highly debated thing. But in a, a really abstract general sense, it's the practices, knowledge, uh, and, and beliefs shared by any given body of people in a society or a community. And I kind of extend that to mean any kind of social or sociological personality. So in that sense, I think culture is a thing that happens between any people wherever they gather. And you might have things like an entire nation state that has its cultural aspects that can acquire a lot of momentum. But even a family has its own little customs and things and ways of being, or a circle of friends, or a small company, 
uh, it has these things that emerge very organically and aren't, this, aren't easy to express or pin down or chart, but they're there and they influence us at all times. So that's what I tend to mean by culture. Um, what I don't mean is this kind of high culture or culture of the big C, uh, the stuff people see as fancy or carrying prestige or status. I, I don't really care about that. I think it's quite toxic. So how hard is it to change the culture of video games if, what did you call it, tits and guns and, um, and also things like Star Wars and fantasy? It seems like it would be, that's very ingrained and you're fighting quite a difficult battle there. <laughs> Uh, a glacial battle, I would say. <laughs> um, it's, it's, yeah, an oil tanker looks nimble in comparison to cultural change, I think. And unless you own like a newspaper or a TV channel, you don't really have much of a lever to bring to bear on that. So at the same time, because I see culture as this thing that happens between people, it means you do have access to it wherever you are and whoever you're with. So it's not that you're completely powerless and we're just like peons being mashed up by this enormous machine. Um, you, you can influence it in small ways, but it's often like in the sense of DIY culture about doing what you can with what you've got. So through Feral Vector and Left Field, I've managed to acquire a couple of larger levers than most people get to to push on, but they're not that big in comparison to the games industry. And on a bad day, it does feel kind of futile. You're just mm. pushing against this tide of defaults that continually resets. Um, and like, it's not just some like moany thing of like, oh, my small art projects are getting steamrolled by the evil corporate juggernaut. It's the the corporate juggernaut itself can't really perceive parts of itself um so an example i've often used it's a bit better known nowadays but maybe five years ago absolutely wasn't is a game called star stable which is an absolutely massive mmo about magic horses aimed at little girls it has millions of monthly subscribers it is absolutely enormous and I have seen it pop up more times since, but five years back, it was kind of this huge thing that the games industry did not talk about or glorify or put on conference stages or anything because Magic Horses for Little Girls doesn't really fit the self-image of video games. It's too far outside the default culture. I don't want to be a king. I want to build better cultures. Um, so, for example, I'm happy for friends I've got in the industry who've won awards and enjoy that sort of thing. I've been nominated for a few over the years, but I don't really care about them. Uh, it's just not a thing that personally matters to me. Building healthier cultures is the thing. And that is a very grassroots-led DIY spaces kind of thing. Something like the games industry just doesn't admit that. It, it doesn't allow it in. It doesn't give it space. It doesn't see the value of it or really give it any importance. You're either making a commercial product that's successful or you're nothing. Is that a problem of success or something? Like, is it that the games industry is doing so well that it's become more 
narrow and um, focused only on the things that make money? Like, how has this happened? Video games are possibly the only medium that has arisen within or entirely within the space of modern economics. Mm, mm. Um, And as such, they have always been framed as a product. And culturally, that is how people are automatically taught to think of them, Uh, which is why you end up with, or part of why you end up with really, really terrible questions like, are video games art? Because if you're only taught to think of a thing as a product, you're not really taught to deal with it in any other way or understand it in any other ways or even ask decent questions about the thing. So while certain cultural parameters have changed, like if you look at the early consoles launching, I think the Magnavox launched in 1972. At the time, they were seen as a family thing or marketed as a family thing more specifically because it was a thing that you plugged into the one TV in the household that was generally in a communal area. And it's only when kids started getting portable TVs in the 80s that you really saw this shift, Uh, which, you know, was possibly a continuation of arcade culture. But in the home, it became this thing teenagers could do in their bedroom and specifically drilled down on teenage boys. While that was a big cultural shift that the industry has been trying to walk back, which is, you know, a, a positive thing. All the way through that trajectory, they're still a commercial product. They're not trying to exist in other forms. They're not being funded to exist in other forms. It's an art form that didn't start as one. It started yeah. as a, a as a toy or a, a playful thing. Um, well, the reason I ended up interested in games in the first place was because they're very weird and plastic. Um, and in that sense, they they can borrow from any other form and mimic it and use aspects of it or techniques from it. They can exist almost entirely within that one form combined with system design. If you want, you can build an audio-only game or a text-only game or a vision-only. You know, you can... You can do all these interesting, weird things with games that borrow from everywhere else. I think that is inherently interesting. And there was a particular year of my life where I was working in an art gallery. I was doing freelance photography. I was working as a freelance writer. And in my spare time, I was messing around with level design for video games. And video games were always the one I told myself, like, when I get overwhelmed, they're the thing I have to drop because... It's not making me any money. It's not going to pay rent or put food in my mouth. It's, you know, they're just toys for children and teenagers. And every time, you know, I did get to the point that year I was doing too much stuff and had to drop things. And every single time I couldn't drop video games because they're too interesting. So I dropped one of the other three. And I think it was, yeah, it was working in the gallery that I dropped last. And Every time I dropped one of those other three things, I realized that things I had learned in that field were relevant to video game level design, whether it's to do with narratives or writing or composition or curation or anything. All these things could weave into building a 3D thing for someone to play in 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 really weird and interesting ways that I didn't expect. And it was all the other things I had to go up that kind of showed me how weird and interesting video games are.
You're saying there that you dropped galleries um, quite late on as well. Do you, how do you feel the relationship between games and galleries? Uh, how would you describe that relationship now? The word describe it now. And I did actually try to do a kind of spare time research and interviews project like three or four years back, uh, asking games people about culture. What I found was people were willing to talk to me, but they didn't want to go on record um, publicly because it was this weird atmosphere. This was before the V&A show that Marie did as well. Um, so this is back when no museums had really done a serious examine, examination of video games with a kind of curatorial practice to it. They'd just like dump an arcade in the museum to bring some kids through the doors. Um, it was like no one knew how to talk to each other, which I think is still a problem. And everyone was afraid of putting their foot in their mouth. So uh, I'd describe that relationship as still slightly awkward and siloed with a bunch of people from different fields who don't really know how to understand each other. At the same time, back in the late 90s and early noughts, there were artists making art with video games and running and showing it in galleries. It's not something the industry was ever really aware of because why would it be? It's not a product. And from that division, you get the industry asking really terrible questions like, are video games arts? Which I think is a badly formulated question because if you look back to kind of the, the weird quake things I was seeing in galleries at the time, uh, if you ask instead, can you use the tools you used to make video games to make art? The answer is obviously yes. If you're asking, are video games art? That's, that's just a really badly framed question. It's like asking, is painting art, but encompassing everything from old masters to me painting that wall over there with just a roller. They have some of the same procedures in them, but they're fundamentally different things for different purposes. There's also this kind of horrible three-body problem when it comes to definitions of culture and people wanting things to be culture, which is that conflict between culture as an anthropological or sociological thing and culture as high status. And I think a lot of talk about video games as culture within the industry is driven by those kind of status competitions rather than being driven by trying to find out what video games are as cultural objects. And it means that within the industry, you have this division between people ritualistically chasing pedestals and enshrining things and people who are trying to build something from the ground up that's new. Do you think there's a step, though, that might be uh, first you get recognition by the organisations and then you take them down from the inside? Is that is that a legitimate route? I've never been convinced by that idea. I think, actually, uh, culture is highly infectious and you end up just taking the shape of the thing you're, you're existing within. Um, so, in that sense, that, that chasing of pedestals and status and that sort of competition that is a culture in an anthropological sense and it's one i find kind of repellent so maybe but i'm definitely not the person to do it
that whole conflict with culture as status and culture as bodies of people practicing things together, I think that exists in every field. And I've even spoken to artists in the past five years. Like It's a long time since I've been involved with the art world in any sense. And when I was, it was kind of a local art scene in my home city. Um, but artists have the same frustration with the art world as I have with the video games industry because there is an enormous amount of survivor bias. There's this kind of personality cults that follow people around because they're rich and famous, so they must know what they're doing, right? They definitely didn't get lucky. And you see it over and over again, probably in every field. I don't know. Like Maybe it does happen at plumbing conferences or something too. I, I find it hard to imagine, but possibly. But definitely in any kind of cultural fields, this is a phenomenon and it drives people absolutely up the wall. Uh, it's what drove me out of art originally, like after a few years of working in galleries, basically running show submissions with friends and curating and hanging these shows in a gallery. We were a gallery that had to pay rent. So it meant to show at that gallery as an artist, you either needed funding or you needed to be able to pay for the time. Occasionally, we could carve out enough space to just put something in there because we wanted it to be shown. But for the most part, it, it really narrowed down opportunities because you needed to be an artist that in some sense could afford to be in this gallery and you needed to meet these curatorial standards. And what we saw in the wider scene around us was a stark contrast between artists who weren't necessarily making great art, but were very good at funding applications and artists who were doing absolutely great work, but it was the sole thing they were devoted to. And they just, they couldn't really show it anywhere because they didn't have the opportunities or the means. They weren't good at writing funding apps or whatever. And it was really heartbreaking to see year in, year out. And then like, not naming any names of any person or institution, there was a large arts institution that popped up and got funding and basically sucked up all the funding for all these other galleries. And that in turn meant it went from quite a vibrant culture to having this one monolithic place. And some of the people that ended up on the various boards that ran that process were kind of the most out there rapacious artists we knew in the scene it was just incredibly dispiriting to watch that pedestal machine like not just do its thing but destroy everything else in the process um i've kind of been lucky enough not to see anything that heartbreaking in the games industry but it is kind of the structure of it it's really hard isn't it because also if you it takes a lot of courage and actually a lot of risk uh, to personal sort of status and things to support people who aren't the famous ones or the ones who are getting pushed up. And it is really hard for people to say you have to give up some status and stop supporting the people who you know are going to be an easy win for you, if, you know. Yeah. Um, it's really hard. There was an interesting jump in that sense with Feral Um because like, in my old job, I was organizing conferences and got kind of bored of conferences. Took a year out after I went freelance and everyone at the time, I was, I think, the only person in the UK or organizing conferences for indie developers. Uh, it was just 
develop had just started doing the indie day. Um, no one else was really doing much with it. And everyone was pestering me saying, hey, you should do that indie conference you were doing for your former employer. And I was like, I'm bored of conferences. I'm kind of bored of watching people talk from a state. They, I mean, I have physical problems with conferences in that if I've had lunch and I sit down and listen to someone doing public speaking, I will go to sleep, like almost no matter what. Um, <laughs> I want to walk around and poke things and look at them and you know do stuff with my hands. Um, so I took a year out and then at develop one year, I was in the indie day and there was this one guy doing a talk and he had like a pyramid with gray stripes on the screen behind him. And I can't remember what the words were in the pyramid, but they were all business words. And then as me and this production manager for another event sat down together, it was like 4 p.m. Uh, we sat down and he flipped a slide to a Venn diagram with three circles and different shades of gray with more business words in them. And as we sat down, he was monotoning into the mic. You have to be passionate when you're pitching your game. People can tell if you're not passionate. And I looked at the guys with Lee and Lee kind of mouth pub and moved his head towards the door. It's like, yeah, and we got straight back up and just left. It's like, that's exactly why I don't want to organize conferences. Um, I'm so fed up to this day, like a decade later. In fact, yeah, just over a decade later, I'm still fed up of the default tech conference talk where you just basically read out your websites, clients or portfolio page, or even worse, someone else's clients or portfolio page just because you think their projects are cool. Um, the survivor bias of the people on the stage, like it wasn't many years before that I watched someone stand up on stage at an industry conference and preach the virtues of MMOs and go on about how they're money printers and blah, 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 and listen to Mr. Rich and Successful. And then six months later, launched his own MMO and it just bombed and he got fired by the company. And, you know, it's these just very dull, ineffective rituals get repeated over and over again. I figured out I could do a conference again and it's what became Feral Vector. I don't have to make people do talks because a part of it was indie developers at the time weren't that comfortable with public speaking and doing that work for my former employers find I was almost having to bully people onto stage and it was really unfun for everyone. Uh, and I realized I'm meeting all of these weird, interesting, creative people through indie games. I'm going to book a space with multiple rooms and then tell them, or ask them, do you want to do a thing at this event? You get an audience for half an hour and you can do whatever you want with that. And it ended up in workshops and performances and live games. And someone turned up with a suitcase full of rocks and had people make games out of rocks on the floor of like the bar in the back of Battersea Arts Center. And it grew into this other thing where we still have talks in the morning because that's kind of a familiar entry point for people and means they don't just get cast into this bizarre event full of random stuff. But after lunch, it switches to small workshops. And those are kind of rather than you're in a classroom for four hours, you can sit down at the table 
and be taught something for 10 minutes and then hang out for a few hours if you want. It's people making games quietly in the woods or or noisily in the woods in some cases. Uh, it's people taking people out for like Ed Key did a foraging walk with some people. Uh, he really learned some lessons about teaching foraging there, um, such as tell people the thing is poisonous before you name it. <laughs> no one got poisoned. It was fine. But it was like, if you just start saying, and this is such and such, people will immediately be putting it in their mouths. <laughs> Um, it's the reason we do throw of act like that is because we want to draw in those wider cultural influences. And one of the main things I've learned over the years with that was to actually focus on unknown speakers, smaller names, creates a better atmosphere and it has some interesting effects. I haven't quite figured out yet, but in the early days, I was still very much in this events manager mindset of you've got to get some big names in because that will sell your tickets. And actually, it's building a better culture that will strengthen your event in so many more ways than just selling a few more tickets and making it a bit more money. Um, it's giving people space to be a community uh, to explore new things will strengthen that event. And usually it is people who aren't very widely known who will be the more interesting speakers, even if they're inexperienced ones. They will have new perspectives. They'll have work that hasn't been seen before. Whereas anyone who has become a big name within an industry or particularly video games is way more likely to just repeat the kind of tech or video games industry rituals at your audience. And that's useless. It's inherently disappointing and by bringing in those big names you're almost setting yourself the event everyone up for a disappointment uh, including the speaker having been to feral vector and also done a talk there i think it's like the most warm and welcoming thing i've ever been at really it's the, yeah it is it's just totally like everybody's like cheerleading for each other so that sense of like you can try things out. You can be experimental. Um, I took my nine-year-old daughter along with me and we did a talk about slime <laughs> and we made slime and it was just, it just felt like it didn't matter if it all went wrong. And but it also created the environment for friendships to form mm -hmm. as well. So I've kept in contact with people that I probably wouldn't have ever met in any other context and worked with them as well. So like Jim Thompson, for example, yeah, and Lynn up in uh, Dundee, you know, that probably if I'd gone to a normal convention or a conference, I would not have had that connection. Totally. So maybe not video games didn't emerge out of that for me, but maybe a more uh, sort of understanding of the ecosystem definitely did. Yeah, I think I'm not sure how it might change over the next decade if we do it for the next decade, but it's starting to feel like it's not so much a video games event as an event about making things and video games are a good meeting point for that in that they can involve lots of things in, in one system. Like if I had to define video games and, and mostly I wouldn't let people pin me down to doing it, but if I had to, uh, the definition I work from is generally that they are system design combined with media. 
And friends have pointed out to me that that is a problematically broad definition. And it is, and I'm fine with that because the kind of curation I need to do, I have to be open to innovative things. I can't have some rigid mental criteria that make me look at a new thing and go, well, that's not video games. I'm more in the mindset of asking, what if it is? I had a really fun time discussing that with a couple of friends some years back. Uh, We were going to write a zine about it, but never kind of got around to pulling it together. But we're discussing the concept of found video games. Um, And we weren't, we were really not strict about what that, that, what a found video game could be. So for instance, uh, a hotel shower could be a found video game (laughs) with all these baffling affordances. It's a puzzle game that you have to work out. Uh, the tube in London is a found video game. I you just this. play it with a very so large good. set of peripherals. Yeah, we had a longer list. Those are the two I've always remembered. So the tube just being a video game that uses some extremely large peripherals that you get inside of. Um, yeah, found video games is a fun notion. Showers, definitely. All, all unfamiliar showers. <laughs> yeah. That's brilliant. Yes, Oh, I love that. Yeah. Why not a found video game? You can have other kinds of found art. Like, absolutely. Yeah. And some of it, like the discussion at the time, some of it came from Charlie Brooker having recently said Twitter is a video game. And everyone went, no, it's not. And he went, yeah, it absolutely is. You've got some numbers and you're trying to make them go up by interacting with the computer. <laughs> um, and more recently, there's like the white pube are doing absolutely great video game reviews that are culturally from a very different place to anything you would read as a video game review normally. But if you click on the website and look at games, uh, one of the games they've reviewed is Love Island. Oh, so Emma's mostly with us in text. Um, but you asked a question I've just seen in the chat, which is if an indie games publisher could do something really impactful and a value towards culture change, what would you recommend they do? I do have uh, a specific suggestion on this. And it's one that for various structural reasons, funding bodies tend to not be able to do. And I think, yeah, I've only come across one company doing it. And they're actually a game developer for the most part, but are doing other stuff now too. Uh, So Co-op Mode in Toronto did a thing called CoLab where they were working on a project and they had some spare budget left over, I think like $4,000. And rather than hire a junior programmer to work for X number of weeks for that money, they decided to give it to two people. Uh, so Paul Clarissou was one and Paloma Dawkins was the other. And they basically told them, here's $2,000, go make a thing. That was it. Like, <laughs> and they were picking artists they were interested in. And um, I might be misremembering the title. Um, I'm going to look it up just so I don't mess this up. Oh, I found a thing which I'll paste in the chat, see if that's the right one. It's code. No, that's not them. Uh, so the co-lab was K-O underscore lab. 
and yet nothing to do with mushrooms like that link just sent me <laughs> um yeah so paul made a thing called orchids to dusk which was a you are a, a, an astronaut a space explorer and you are stuck on an alien planet and you have i think four minutes worth of oxygen left and that's it you know that you're going to die in four minutes and you're wandering around this landscape and there are just these little gardens everywhere and you're just kind of wandering between these tiny little oases where all these amazing plants have sprung up in this infinite looking landscape and then at the end of four minutes you get a choice of whether to die in your suit or take your helmet off and if you take your helmet off then your astronaut becomes one of those gardens and every single place on the map where one of those little gardens existed is a place where another player chose to remove the helmet at the end of those four minutes um it's visually very beautiful it's a very simple small project that paul made in two months the other was paloma dawkins who again made this absolutely beautiful psychedelic game called gardenarium that was like nothing else that I'd ever seen at the time. It is such a small investment, like uh, investment. It's it's not a thing co-op mode were looking to see a return on. They weren't acting like a publisher in this sense. They just had some money and wanted to fund interesting things. Um, that level of funding does not exist in video games. Like nowadays, you you're looking for six figures to make a thing or you're bootstrapping with scraps. Um, if you're an artist or just someone experimenting who doesn't call themselves an artist, $2,000 like buys you a month of not worrying about rent, not worrying about this, that or the other, and having time to actually sit down and make a thing. And honestly, more organizations should be doing that if they want to create cultural change. Um, but you if all of your expectations are tied to the idea of a return on investment or yielding a product, then of course you can't do those kind of things and they don't make sense to you. But if you're looking to make new and interesting and innovative things, then, then it makes total sense to be funding prototyping in those kind of ways. It, it doesn't take that much time or resource to generate a new thing. Um, and see if it's worth poking some more or not. Yeah, the important thing that you spend money on is time, isn't it? Because a lot of tools are affordable now. So, um, yeah, it's it, it's quite easier than it used to be. But I always think about Prince of Persia and Jordan Meshner just like hand rotoscoping every single frame of his brother running around. And it's something so joyful about that, just like using the family camcorder to create like an absolutely iconic game um, with very little, I suppose. Yeah, well, like... Um... I, it's Halloween last night. I watched Army of Darkness with some friends and like maybe that had a bit more of a budget, but actually the Evil Dead films with all those like weird camera angles and stuff, apparently lots of that came from them just having no money and having to mess around and be creative. It wasn't that they'd dumped tens of thousands of dollars into developing this new camera that could simulate being on a wall of spikes moving towards a person. They're just like, messing around with duct tape and string and the camera they had 
and like invented techniques that got picked up and put into much higher budget productions. Like 2013, I ran a thing in a gallery for a massive corporation. Uh, it was absurdly well-funded and that was done through their hospitality department, which was, you know, it is marketing work for them. They wanted to provide a place in Shoreditch where people could come on their lunch break and play 20 fun and interesting indie games. So that was a way of shaking that out of that budget. And they're very careful to like position it in certain ways. So it was a gallery, but they didn't have any of the walls white. Uh, the stuff was packed fairly tightly in it was somewhere between an arcade and a gallery in the way it felt uh, but it had none of a gallery's austerity and it wasn't as overcrowded as an arcade it was its own space for looking at and playing video games yeah i think that's the key isn't it is finding a new way of representing games that isn't just um using the aesthetics of the existing art world but actually yeah. shows them to their best somehow yeah so like 2005 there was a thing at e3 where they got artwork from video games and put it in like gilt frames <laughs> i think they were gilt frames and hung them on a wall in a gallery in los angeles and it's like because that's art right now there are video games there are now we've put them in a frame on a wall and it's like you're you're not really going one way or the other so you have galleries that are the kind of stereotypical white cube that put a lot of effort into understanding and contextualizing work. And whether you regard that as like vital, important work or a load of wank built from $5 words, which it sometimes is in the support of kind of art markets where people launder money or hold collections in free ports or whatever, like, there are all kinds of things to pick apart and get frustrated with in the art world, but that is nonetheless a considered practice for various ends of putting work in white cubes and contextualizing it. Or at the other end, you have commercial galleries where every bit of wall space is taken up by something. And they're like more analogous to the way arcades used to be uh, in that you'd cram in as many arcade machines as you could and everything is fighting for its piece of floor space. Uh, commercial galleries are kind of like that. They exist for a different sensibility. And back when I was working in galleries, like there were some fun dynamics there where you could take the assumptions of a commercial gallery and use them to insult your friends. So I'd see artists at each other's openings going like, oh, this is great. I really like the frame. Where did you get it done? <laughs> like, I love this painting. Could you do it in blue to go with my sofa? <laughs> And like that's those things are, you know, that those are considerations that are valid in certain contexts, but that context is a commercial gallery and people shopping to complete an interior. It's not that context of putting something in white space by itself or next to other works specifically chosen to go next to it with a statement explaining it or a body of work or philosophy behind it, some kind of intent. And when you take video game artwork and put it in a frame and shove it on the wall, it's not much different to museums shoving an arcade in a museum just to bring kids through the door. It's 
it's symbolically doing the thing rather than actually doing the thing. because the one I started with some friends was a volunteer run gallery. It's the only one that's still left of all the galleries that are around at the time, like 20 years later. Yeah. Um, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. They also, they've had their own building, which they've been in for about 15 years now. They don't own it. They just like have an arrangement with the council, but before hack spaces were a thing, the people who took that on after Weirdle, like long since gone, Mm. Um, set up their basement as basically a workshop and hack space for artists to use, which again, I think is really smart. Like it's not just a gallery space. It's actually a meeting point for all those people mm. to do their work. We interviewed um, Laika Young, who's um, uh, an amazing person, actually. They're the lead experience designer at Meow Wolf, which is an oh, yeah. amazing um, immersive experience organization in America. It's kind of an arts organization. And Laika was saying that the, the real art project that they're doing is the relationship between the people in the team, um, because the work they're doing is always going to be good. So it's not really a challenge to them, but the actual beautiful connections they have with each other and that that was when you were just talking then that was what it made me think of uh, do you feel like there's I suppose um art in in this idea of community and the community cultures that you can generate uh I'm not sure I'd describe it as an artwork but yes there's definitely some process or art or craft in in doing that um and I am still very much learning about this like I've never had any kind of training in managing or running things I have always been the person who's willing to make some decisions or step forward so I have tended to end up in charge of things without necessarily having the experience to be and then muddling my way through there is some of that work done in the structure you set up and the people you pick and put together and some of that is really fuzzy, intuitive work. Like sometimes you just know two people are going to get on really well. And sometimes you know that at all costs, you must keep this person and this person apart and not have their jobs interact with each other. Um, but then from the other end, there is craft in building the right environment for people. So if you've got enough structure and mentoring and support in place, what you actually need to do from there is give people the right environment to work in. And so like, and when I say work, I mean it in the loosest possible sense of anything that passes between people. So culture, um, environment is a huge influence on that. And I've come to learn that people become better people if you give them better environments. So like, it's been a lot of work and fine tuning to create a welcoming atmosphere at Feral Vector and to make it a warm and friendly place. And some of that is about identifying things and editing them out of the event. Like, oh, there's this one bit of the venue where some like high profile clique always tends to end up occupying and hanging out. And it's weird and intimidating for everyone else around them. And most people aren't even conscious of it. They just know that there's something in that corner that makes them uncomfortable. 
And once you learn to watch and see those things, you can be like, all right, let's put an artwork in a tent on that little like raised bit of floor. And it completely just unknots that clique. Uh, the way we run the workshops uh, nowadays, rather than asking people like, what can you do as a workshop? I ask people, what can you teach someone in 10 minutes? And could you do it at a table in the middle of the floor among a load of other tables? Because that has a really subtle effect of constantly breaking cliques apart and reforming them. And having this kind of landscape of attractors that constantly pulls those kind of cliques apart just solves the problem in that the attractors become meeting points for people and then the cliques can reform when they're not interacting with all those things. But you find people who turn up for the first time by themselves end up making a group of friends and being pulled into stuff. So it is a kind of event planning and architectural problem. These are ways you can influence culture in an environment that you're designing or controlling. Uh, that's what's interesting about events management to me is mm. making an environment where people feel better. And that's like a series of very small levers you can pull to make a culture different. But when you can create an environment where people don't feel alienated, they express different things. They mm. act in different ways. They feel different ways. It, it builds upwards and makes everyone feel so much better. Thanks for listening to Art of Fury, the podcast. We really hope you're enjoying it. If so, please go to iTunes and give us a quick rating and review on there. It helps other people to find us. Remember, you can find us on Twitter as well. We are at Art of Fury Pod on there. So please come and join the conversation. The music you've been listening to throughout this episode is from The Longest Road on Earth, which is a Raw Fury game, and the composer and performer in the music is Bea. See you next time. Let's see what we can create, what we can create.